Well, thank you for being back to this study, How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Student. There's two things that I want to say to you tonight as we, before we get into to this. Two things I want to emphasize. Uh, just things that are on my heart, and it may or may not mean anything to you. But the two things I want to say to you is, is first of all, uh, I don't want to stand here as if I know everything about how to read and study the Bible. So I, I hope that it doesn't come across that way, that I know it all. And if you'll just listen, I'll tell you all about it. Uh, I have learned some things over the years, but there is so much I don't know. In fact, they used to tell us in seminary, and the longer I'm pastoring, and the older I get, and the more I study the Bible, the more I realize how true it is what they used to say to us in seminary. They, they would say to us, the more you learn about the Bible, the more you'll learn you don't know. And what they're mean, meaning by that is, the Bible is so deep and so rich, you will never exhaust the knowledge that is there. And so I just want to emphasize to you, I'm not standing here tonight as the expert who, who knows everything about how to study the Bible. I'm simply trying to share with you some of the places where I found bread. Some of the places where God has fed me and some of the ways you can study uh, and perhaps read your Bible better. That's the first thing I want to say. I don't know it all. Second thing I want to say to you tonight is this. I don't want you to feel like you're reading the Bible wrong. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. If you're reading the Bible, I'm for you doing that. However you do it. I don't think there's a wrong way to read the Bible. And so if you're reading the Bible, God bless you. You keep doing that. And let, because I'm going to tell you something. God the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. And He can take somebody who reads the Bible for the first time and change their life by the truth that is there. Somebody who doesn't even know cemetery from cemetery. Seminary from cemetery. I'll get it right. See, I'm telling you, I'm not the expert. But he can take somebody that doesn't know cemetery from seminary. And somebody's read the Bible for the very first time. And they can read the text and understand it. And it will change their life. So please, please, please don't feel like I'm saying you're doing it wrong. I'm just saying here are some ways that you might read it better. Here are some ways that may help you as you read your Bible. So with that said, last week we were talking about interacting with your Bible. Not just reading it. Interacting with it. And what we talked about last week is that there is both grammatical and literary structure in the Bible. And the better you understand the grammatical and the literary structure in the Bible, the better you can read your Bible. And so last week, and I'm not going to rehearse all of this, but last week we talked about uh, identifying the meaning of the words in the context. And we talked about study in before you go out. That, that you try to study the, the word in its context and you, you work your way out. And we also stud, uh, talked about the laws of structure. And last week as we were talking about the laws of structure, I told you there were 12. And we got to number 7, all the way through number 7. So that's where we're going to pick up tonight. So if you have your notes, just trying to give you the context so you, you can understand where we are. We talked last week about the laws of structure, and I'm just going to mention the first seven that we discussed last week. Cause and effect, climax, uh, comparison, contrast, explanation or reason, introduction and summary, and then the one that I really like, pivot or hinge. And that's where we ended last week. So I want to give you the other uh, five as we talk about these these 12 laws of structure, and then we'll continue talking about something else. So, picking up where we left off, number eight, laws of structure. Here's number eight. If you've got your notebook with you, here's number eight. And that is proportion. As you're reading the Bible, look for proportion. As you're trying to understand the structure of the text you're reading, 
Look for proportion. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, emphasis is indicated by the amount of space the writer devotes to a subject. The writer is emphasizing something, and one of the ways that you understand what the writer is emphasizing is by the amount of space they give to that subject. Uh, I, I, a couple of very clear examples uh, are easy to give to you. In the Gospel of John, we won't take the time to look at it and read it, but in the Gospel of John, there are 21 chapters, I believe, in the Gospel of John. The first 10 chapters deal with the life of Jesus. First 10 chapters explain the life of Jesus. The last 11 chapters deal with the final week of Jesus. And so if you're reading that and you're looking at this structure of the book and say, well, let me look at it as far as proportion. The first 10 chapters talk about the life of Jesus and the last 11 chapters talk about the final week in his life. That final week must be important. And so we're looking at proportion. The writer is trying to emphasize something. Um, Another, another example that I've told you about recently is in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there are 50 chapters, and the first 11 chapters of Genesis talk about creation and the spread of sin and all of those kind of things. Uh, uh, how God created man and woman and how sin entered the world and then the spread of sin. That's the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But chapters 12 through 50 talk about one family. So what God was doing through one family, the writer of Genesis is saying, this is very significant. And we know that by looking at the proportion of what's in the Scripture. So, as you're looking, as you're reading through a book of the Bible, ask how much space is given to this subject. What is the writer emphasizing? How much space, and it may not be a whole book, it may be a chapter, but how much space is the writer giving to this particular subject? And what is the writer emphasizing? So that's, that's proportion. Number nine. Number nine is purpose. Purpose. I, I, I really like this one. The, there is sometimes a declaration of the author's purpose. The author will sometimes tell you at the beginning of the book or at the ending of the book why he wrote what he wrote. That helps you understand the book as you look at the structure. What is the author's purpose? What is he trying to communicate? Again, let me give you some examples. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon, the author of this letter, tells us at the beginning why we should read this book. He tells us at the beginning what his purpose is for this book. And so in, in Proverbs chapter 1, Look at the first six verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And, and then he says, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Solomon is telling us at the very front of the book, this is why you should read this book. This is what this book can do for your life. This book will help give you wisdom. This book will help you make good decisions. This book will help you be a disciplined person. This, he, he frames it for us. Here's the structure that I'm going to give you in this book and then the rest of the book. He, he tells us the things that he showed us in the first Six verses. So sometimes the purpose is declared at the front end of the book, and then sometimes the purpose is declared at the end of the book. Go to John 
I've given you this example before, but it's such a perfect example of purpose. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John has structured his letter in a unique way. And we may be talking about this soon, so I'm not going to get too much into this. Uh, But John talks about signs and miracles in John chapter 20. And he he has chosen certain signs and miracles that he emphasizes in in his book. And then at the end of the book, he tells us why he did that. At the end of the book, he tells us what his purpose was in doing that. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, I haven't told you everything that Jesus did. I haven't told you every miracle Jesus performed. He did a lot of miracles that I didn't even write about. Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John said, that's why I've written this book. Now that you've read about these seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed, I want you to think about them. And once you begin to think about who could do such miraculous signs unless he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And I'm writing these down so that you might see that and understand it and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So purpose. Purpose is an important part of trying to understand a letter. Why? Everybody look up here for a minute. Let me tell you something. Every letter in the Bible, every book in the Bible has a purpose. There's a reason it was written. Now sometimes the, the author will tell us the purpose and sometimes it's not as clear. But every book in the Bible has a purpose. So anytime you're going to read scripture, you ought to find out why Matthew wrote Matthew. Or, or why Paul wrote Ephesians. Or, 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 or why... Uh, Moses wrote Exodus. What what was his purpose? That's a big question to answer that will help you understand the structure of a book. All right, number 10, God's calling. Make sure you pick that up. Number 10, question and answer. Question and answer. The use of questions or questions and answer are sometimes a wonderful uh, key to understanding the structure of a book. Uh, a little bit of a commercial here, but if you'll go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. We just introduced the book of Malachi to you on Wednesday night, and we're going to be studying the book of Malachi on Wednesday nights for the next several weeks. Facing our complacency is really the the theme behind the letter or the book. Uh, But Malachi, as he is prophesying and writing this prophecy down, uses this structure, this literary structure of question and answer. He uses it beautifully throughout the book. Six times there are big questions and answers that he scatters throughout this book. Let me give you an example. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And then he explains. Verse 6 and 7. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord? And so there's question and there's answer throughout the book. Chapter 2, verse 17 is another example. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? There's the question. Here's the answer. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? So sometimes, if you look real carefully, the author uses question and answer. By the way, this is not just an Old Testament literary device. It's also a New Testament device. 
literary device. Let me give you an example real quickly in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Apostle Paul, of course, wrote the, the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 6, he uses this idea of question and answer beautifully as he describes how we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? There's the question. By no means, Paul says. And then he gives us the answer in the following verses. Uh, Verse 15, look at it again. What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. And then he gives us the answer. So that's another way to look at the structure of the book. Are there questions and answers? All right. So that's number 10. Number 11. Uh, number 11 is probably my, my favorite of all of them. Uh, I, I, it's kind of like going to Israel. Every place I am in Israel, I say, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. Well, well, this is my favorite as far as the structure, what I'm looking for when I'm reading. And if you've been with me any time at all, you've heard me talk about this one probably a lot because it just I get so much out of the Scripture through this next one that I'm going to give you. And it's Repetition. Repetition. Terms or phrases that are used more than one time. Terms or phrases that are used. And and I've called your attention to that so many times when we're reading a verse. Hey, did you notice this word is used three times in two verses? And and it's this idea of look for things, look for terms, look for phrases that are used more than one time, that are repeated. Um, You know, Jesus often did this. Uh, Jesus often used repetition. In fact, if you read in the Gospels, Jesus many times would say, he that, he, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said it again and again and again. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what he was saying to his disciples? Hey guys, there's some things I really want you to pay attention to. And so he kept repeating those phrases to people. Now, let's have a little bit of fun. Here, here's, uh, go in your Bible, take your Bibles, and turn to Psalm 136. I want you to read Psalm 136. And I want you to guess what the theme of Psalm 136 is. It's kind of a, there's 26 verses. You may not read all of them, but you'll get the idea pretty quickly, I think. Psalm 136, those watching online, I hope you've got your Bible. Turn with us to Psalm 136. You read it as well. So read Psalm 136. Tell me the theme. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. Ready, set, go. Just read it. Just read it. See if you can guess the theme. Bless you. You see anything repeated in Psalm 136? This is an easy one, right? What's the theme? Yeah. Now you do see something else repeated in the first part of the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. So there's one example of repetition. We ought to give thanks to the Lord. But why do we give thanks to the Lord? For His love endures forever. By the way, if we took the time, you can break it down. There, there are six verses in Psalm 136 that, uh, that recite or deal with creation. And then there's six verses about Israel being delivered from captivity. And, and it, it breaks down beautifully. It's a great psalm to, 
to study like this. It was used in their liturgy. It was used in their worship. But, but just, we don't want to get too deep into that. But just let you know, hey, as you're reading things in the Scripture, do you see something repeated more than once? What's the author's purpose in doing that? Because he's want, wanting to communicate something to you. He wants to make sure you don't miss it. And so in Psalm 136, it'd be really hard to miss it because he says it over and over and over. His love endures forever. Don't forget that. His love endures forever. His love endures so look for t- terms and phrases that are repeated. Another example, we won't have time to turn to it. Another example is in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter. And you'll see this phrase repeated over and over, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Isaac did this. By faith, Jacob did this. And, and so the theme of, of Hebrews 11 is that whatever you do for God, you have to do it by faith. It's the value of faith and God working through your life through faith. And so, as you're reading Scripture, look for words or phrases that are repeated. But it's not just terms and phrases that are repeated. I'm still talking about number 11, repetition. Not only looking for words and phrases, but number two, uh, again, this is still repetition. Look for people that are repeated. Look for people. A good example of that is in the book of Acts. We, We won't take the time to read the text, but in the book of Acts... Uh, in the first part of the book of Acts, Peter is the person you see over and over and over and over. Peter's the leader in the New Testament church, and God is using Peter, and uh, Peter's preaching sermons, and Peter's performing miracles. And, and then the second half of the book of Acts, Peter pretty much disappears from the story, and all of a sudden there's Paul. And you see Paul, and he's on this journey, and Paul's starting this church, and Paul is confronting these people, and Paul is doing this, and he's going on this journey, and, and it's all about Paul. And so as you look at the book of Acts and you look at the structure of the book, you're not only looking for terms and phrases that are repeated, but if you look for, uh, there's some people here that seem to be repeated. That must be important, that the writer would talk so much about Peter or the writer would talk so much about Paul. Another type of repetition is the order of things that are repeated. The order of things that are repeated. Again, talking about the book of Acts and talking about... uh, the Gospels also, if, when, the, when the disciples are listed in the Gospels, Peter's always listed first. Judas is always listed last. Now, some of the other guys are in different orders, but, but it's interesting that whenever the disciples are listed in the Gospels, it's always Peter. Number one, he's the leader, and it's always Judas, the betrayer, listed last. So, look at the order of events as you're looking for things that are repeated. Then the last thing, as far as repetition, that I would say to look for, is look for pattern. Look for patterns. A good example of this is if you were studying the books of First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel deal with the lives of Saul and David. And as you read through First and Second Samuel, you'll see this pattern. And the pattern is, anytime Saul is mentioned, he's doing something wrong. Anytime David is mentioned, he's doing something right. And we learn as we look through the book that Saul was the choice of the people of Israel, but David was the choice of God. So it's not an accident that as you read through First and Second Samuel that Saul's always doing something wrong and David's always doing something right because David was God's choice. So, so look for patterns as you're reading the Bible. So that's repetition, my favorite. Number 12. The last law of structure is specific to general or general to specific. 
What do you mean by that? Well, look for the progression of thought to go from a single example to a general principle or vice versa. A great example of that is in the book of James. If you'll go there, James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Here we have a general principle. Don't show favoritism. And then, look what he says after that. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing your fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to a poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we have this general principle, don't show favoritism, verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 4, we have this specific example. To help us understand that general principle. So whenever you come across a broad general statement in scripture. Look to see if there are some other qualifying uh, details. That kind of flesh out that general principle. That's the, the law of specific to general or general to specific. Now, we're talking about the laws of structure. We've, last week and this week we've talked about 12 laws of structure. Uh, hear me. Help me, let me explain this to you. When we talk about the laws of structure, I am not suggesting that you develop a checklist of 12 different things and you read the text and try to say, okay, is it this one? 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 No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying this. Be aware as you read. Try to understand the structure of what you're reading. Or maybe I can say it to you this way. Just be curious. Why, why did the author say it the way he said it? Why did he have that illustration? Why did he repeat those words four times? Why is this person always mentioned first? Just be curious. The biblical writers communicate their purposes through literary structures. It's not happenstance that they wrote what they wrote and how they wrote it. It was led by the Holy Spirit of God and they used the literary structures to communicate the truth of God. So detecting the structure is often the doorway to understanding the author's purpose. So here's, here's what I want you to do. Don't just read the text. Work the text. Work the text. When you make a discovery, here's the reason uh, I'm going to ask you to work the text. When you make a discovery, all of a sudden the light bulbs go off and it feels like you're sliding into the shoes of the author. And when the light bulbs go off and it feels like you're sliding into the shoes of the author, that's the payoff. That's where you really begin to feel like I'm, I'm seeing what he was seeing. I'm understanding what he was understanding. I, I have insight perhaps that I haven't had before. Can I just pause for a moment and give you an example? Can we go back to Lamentations? We were there this morning. Do you remember where Lamentations is? Lamentations is after Jeremiah, before Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 3 is where we were looking. This is just an example of how the laws of structure can help you understand the text better. 
Lamentations chapter 3, and today we were looking at really verses 1 through uh, 23, but we especially tried to focus on verses 21, 22, and 23. In verses 1 through 20, he talks about how his, bad his life had become, and in verse 21 he says, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And I, I mentioned today that word yet, so I'm not going to get into that, but it, it is a pivot word. Uh, it's a word of contrast, yet this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And then we talked about that in verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail, and they're new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. And that's where we stopped. And it's a shame we had to stop there, but sometimes you just, you can't get to it all, right? There's, uh, you leave some of the stuff on the cutting room floor because you just can't get to it all. The next verse is so good. In fact, I've got it highlighted in blue in my Bible and underlined. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore. Do you see that word, therefore? We've talked about looking for those words, the word therefore. This is another pivot or hinge. Number seven in the laws of structure, this is another pivot or hinge. Here is the prophet of God. Watch this. Here is the prophet of God who has dedicated his life for some 40 years preaching the word of God to the people of God. But in this particular instance, to myself. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Can, can I say to you, quite honestly, sometimes the greatest sermons I have ever preached are the ones you've never heard. The ones I've preached to myself. And if you're reading the text and you look at that structure, I say to myself, that ought to catch your attention. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does that mean? And you see that word, therefore. This is a pivot. The prophet is saying, I'm no longer just preaching to people telling them how to live. Sometimes I've got to preach to myself so I can remind myself how to live. If you want to read the Bible better, take the time to work the text and observe the laws of structure. I haven't done this before. I probably should have. Let me pause for a moment. Do you have any questions? I may not have the answer, but do you have any questions about what we've talked about so far? All right, I gave you a chance. So, we've concluded the section, look for laws of structure. We're still talking about grammatical and literary structure. So, here, here's another thing. Number three. Number three is this. Uh, number one was study the word in its context. Number two, look for the laws of structure. Here's number three. Study the cultural backgrounds of a text. Study the cultural backgrounds of a text. Perspective makes a big difference in how we understand the Bible. I have been privileged to go to Israel many times and to take people with me a lot of those times. And, and quite frankly, I hope you'll have the opportunity to go with me one day. I, it's, I'm not going this year, but when things open up, I hope that we can take another trip to Israel and I hope you can go with me or go back. Uh, I, I'll, I'll just say this, this is not intended to be a commercial, it's just an honest fact that spending time in the land of the Bible gives you a perspective that you will not have otherwise. 
Uh, I'll give you an example or, or one or two examples actually. Recently Lisa was reading about Cornelius in Caesarea. You can picture it, can't you? Yeah. In fact, when she was talking about Cornelius in Caesarea, I stopped and asked her the question. I said, uh, were you able to visualize it in your mind? You know what her answer was? Of course. When you've been there, then when you think of Caesarea by the sea, you can see it, you can smell it. You've walked on the beaches of Caesarea Philippi. You have a perspective you wouldn't have if you were just reading it. Another example is a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the folks who went on one of our trips told me about a discussion that he had with somebody, I think in his BSF class perhaps. Uh, it, was, it was kind of after class and they were talking about the text that they'd been studying. Or, and, uh, and it was actually a discussion about the synagogue in Capernaum and going to Peter's house. And the comment that this individual made who, who went with us to Capernaum, he said, you know what, you'd be surprised how close that synagogue is to Peter's house. And he's right. And if those of you who have been there, you can picture it in your mind, can't you? You've got a perspective of how close that house is to the synagogue. My, my point is simply this. When you travel to Israel, you have another set of lenses through which to read the Bible. You have a perspective that greatly enhances your appreciation and understanding of the Bible. And so I would just say this to you. Save your shekels and go with us next time. But, also let me, I know some of you will never be able to make that trip. I get that. So let me say this to all of us. You don't have to go to the land of Israel to interact with the land of the, of the Bible. It helps. No doubt it helps. But you don't have to go to Israel in order to interact with the lands and the people of the Bible. If you will study the cultural backgrounds of a text, it will allow you to visualize the times and the people and the geography more clearly. Uh, the study of biblical culture is known in theological circles as biblical backgrounds. I've, I've had, I, I don't remember if it was more than one, I know I've had at least one class in seminary just on biblical backgrounds. The whole class was just on biblical backgrounds. Understanding the culture and the times and the geography of the Bible. It's an important part of how we work the text. Trying to understand not just the events, but trying to understand the people and the times in which they lived and the places in which they lived. The people in the Bible were influenced by their culture. And the better you understand that culture, the better you can understand the text. Uh, so, to better understand cultural backgrounds, I'm going to give you six questions. Take these six questions to any text. And try to better understand the cultural background. Now let me say you won't always find an answer, but always ask the questions. Alright? Not every text will give you an answer, but always ask the questions. Here's the six questions to understand the cultural background of a particular text. Number one, who is in authority? In this particular text, who is in authority? Whatever the text is you're reading. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Ask the question, who is in authority? Identifying the people who are in authority will help you to understand why the things happened that happened and why they went there and why they said this. and It just helps you to understand the culture. Who is in authority? Again, you will not always be able to answer that question, but many times you will. Are the Romans in authority? 
Is it the Philistines that are in authority? Who's in in authority in this text? Number two, what do people believe? What do people believe? In other words, what's the basic religious climate of the people in this text? Again, whether it's Old or New Testament, what do people in this society, in that culture, what do they believe? And it's not just what do they believe about God, it's just what do they believe about everything? And maybe it's what do they believe about their pagan religion? What, what, what is it they believe? That's a good cultural question to ask. Number three is this. When did they live? What's the time period of the text? What's going on? That is such an important question. When did this take place? When did they live? Number four. Where did they live? Try to understand the geographical setting and the implications that has on the narrative. Where did this take place? For example, you, you hear me talk a lot about Capernaum. It's one of my favorite places to go. But Capernaum is right by the seaside, right by the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's almost literally a stone's throw from the Sea of Galilee. That became the hometown of Jesus. He moved from Nazareth and he, he moved to Capernaum. And if you understand the geographical location, you can understand why that became the hub out of which he ministered throughout Galilee. So, where did they reside? Number five, why do they do what they do? In other words, investigate the social customs and the practices of the people. Why is it they do what they do? Why did she do that? Why did he go there? Why did he not go there? Why do they do what they do? Number six, how did they work and live? What are the occupational trades? What's the general framework of society? How does all of this affect their daily living? How did they do what they do? How did they work and live? Again, these are all just cultural questions, trying to understand the times of the day, the culture of the day. Now, obviously, these questions are not exhaustive. And each question is not always applicable to every text. But these six questions will give you a framework to better understand the critical cultural issues behind any text. And so, here's my question. The reason I've got these books up here. My question is, where in the world would you find this kind of information? Where would you find the kind of information about what people believe and where they lived and uh, you know, why do they do what they do, etc. Well, here's three examples. Number one, it's in commentaries. This is a commentary, uh, R.C.H. Linsky on St. Paul's epistles. So if I were looking at the New Testament, uh, at the, some of the letters of Paul, I could find a lot of that information in a commentary. Uh, here's a, a book called The Manners and Customs of the Bible. So there are a lot of resources like this one. This is a very old one. It's a classic Uh, written in the 70s, but the manners and customs of the Bible, that would help me understand a lot of the things that sometimes I'm reading in Scripture. Uh, And and number three is a Bible dictionary. Bible dictionaries are awesome books to help you really understand the context and the culture uh, around the story that you're reading. Now, some of you perhaps would say, Pastor, I don't have all of those kind of things in my library. I, I don't have the resources to buy those kind of books, and I'm not even sure I want to buy all those books. And I would say to you, you don't have to buy those books. They're all online. And a lot of them are free. So let me give you two places we, online that you can start. And these are not, 
There, there's other places you could go, but these are two that, that I have found helpful. One is called Bible Web App. BibleWebApp.com. And you'll find these kind of resources for free on BibleWebApp.com. Another one, BibleGateway.com. BibleGateway.com. And you'll find these kind of resources there. Some of them are for free. And then on Bible Gateway, you can buy uh, a subscription and you'll get more resources. But some of the resources are free. But it's, it's a very good online Bible resources app. So, I thought we'd end tonight. We're, we're just going to take about five minutes to do this. I thought we'd end tonight by trying to put into practice what we've just talked about as far as understanding the culture. So take your Bibles. Let's try this out. Let's see if it works in real life. We've got our six questions, and the six questions are, who's in authority? What do people believe? When did they live? Where did they reside? Why do they do what they do? And how did they work and live? You've got your six questions, and I want you to read John chapter 4. John chapter 4. For the sake of time, let's just focus on verses 1 through... Um, 1 through 20. Uh, that's kind of, we're not covering the whole story, but John chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, I want you to try to answer as many of these questions as you can, not by looking at these kind of resources, but by simply looking at the text and asking these questions. So read the text, ask the question, who's in authority? What do people believe? When did they live? Where did they reside? Why do they do what they do? And how do they work and live? Those online, we're going to pause for a moment. You can just hang tight. Uh, you can do the same thing at your home and take your Bible and try to answer those questions. So, John chapter 4. Uh, if we were reading this story, we would probably read beyond verse 20. Uh, but for the sake of time, I've asked you to focus on verses 1 through 20. John chapter 4. So the first question, trying to understand the culture around the text. Who is in authority? How did you answer that question? Huh? Rome? Absolutely. Where did you find that in the text? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So, sometimes you find the answers to the questions not in the text itself, but in resources as you're reading about the text, all right? So, just looking at the text, it really doesn't say who's in authority, though it does mention the Pharisees in verse 1. And, and a lot of uh, the reason Jesus left that area was because of the Pharisees. So, so that, that's one of those questions where you don't really get a good answer. You don't always get a good answer to every question, but ask the question anyway. Question number two, what do people believe? Now, this will be an interesting one, and you can get at least a partial answer from the text. What do people believe? Yeah, verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so there's, there's this question of, where is the, the place of real worship? Do we, can we worship here in Samaria? Or do we have to go worship in Jerusalem where your, your temple is? 
So, so that's, that's an interesting question. What do people believe? Question number three, when did they live? Uh, you don't have a time reference really in this except for the time of day. But when did they live? I'll answer that question for you. Uh, they lived, um, of course, in the days of Jesus, early in his ministry. Uh, how do you know that, Pastor Keith? Well, if I just look in the context of the Gospel of John, uh, it says in chapter 1 that Jesus called his first disciples. Chapter 2 is about his first miracle. And uh, then we get to chapter 4. He's still very early in his ministry. So we have this context that early in his ministry, Jesus experienced this um, encounter <clears throat> with this lady. Question number four, where did they reside? Now, this is an important part of the story. Where did they reside? In this story, where did they reside? Samaria. And more specifically, not just in Samaria, but there's a, a certain town, Sychar. Again, we can answer that question from the text, but we can get a lot more information if we go to these resources. If we look at the text and say, okay, I need to learn a little bit about Samaria. And I need to learn a little bit about Sychar. Where did they reside? And it'll help you to understand the culture of the whole story. Number five, why do they do what they do? Why do they do what they do? I, for sake of time, let me give you the answer to that one. Verses 7 through 9. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Parentheses. For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. So we understand the culture. They're in a culture there where one, it was... It was unusual that Jesus was talking to a woman like that. And secondly, it was very unusual that Jesus as a Jew was talking to a Samaritan woman. And this lady even raises that, that issue. Uh, why do they do what they do? Uh, number six, how do they work and live? Well, it's interesting that there's two things that we see in this story uh, two or three things, actually. One, we see Jesus walking and getting tired. How did they work and live? He had to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee. And if I start looking at my resources, I can get an idea of how long of a walk is that. And it's interesting that he said, and he had to walk through Samaria. Now, if you, if you study the background, you understand geographically he did not have to do that, but it seemed to be another reason behind it. There were other routes to go to Galilee, and the Jews often went around the, the, the eastern side of the Jordan River to 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 bypass Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? And we understand the culture and we understand a little bit more than what John is trying to tell us. But, but we also see something very interesting. Look in verse 6 and I'll close with this. It says, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And again, if you do a little bit of research with your resources, you understand the sixth hour was around 12 noon. And if you study a little bit in your resources, you understand that most of the time, the ladies came to draw water at the end of the day when the sun was setting. It was a lot cooler then. They came to draw water at the end of the day for the next day. That was the primary custom. It would make sense. You, you, when it's, you don't come to draw water when it's the hottest at noon. You come to draw water at the end of the day for the next day. So you'll have it tomorrow morning when you get up. Why? 
why did this lady come in the hottest part of the day at noon? Could it be because she knew nobody else would be there? Could it be because she was tired of hearing the whispers and the gossip about the kind of woman she was? She had a reputation in the town. And the more you understand, start asking those kind of cultural questions, the better you understand this encounter and what John is trying to communicate. Uh, That's just an example of how to ask those questions and and basically have a better, deeper understanding of the culture. And when I understand the culture, I'll better understand the text. All right? I hope that's helpful. And next week, we're going to continue to wade a little deeper into that water. Let me pray over you right now. Father, thank you for your word. It is so true. It is so relevant. And we know we'll never exhaust it. We know that we'll never understand it all. But help us to have a better, deeper understanding and appreciation for the word you have given us that is eternal and that is life-changing. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.